Hey, Steminists, it's Emlyn Gremlin here with a quick announcement. You are currently listening to an older episode of Stem Vital, one in which we had not quite figured out how to turn the microphone on. So if the audio quality bothers you, I urge you to skip ahead to episode 17, where we are oh so crisp and oh so clean. That wasn't supposed to rhyme, but it just worked out that way. Okay, here's the app. Welcome. This is Stem Fatal. This is Stem Fatal. Your women in science history podcast. I'm Emma Dilemma. I'm, <laughs> I'm Emily Gremlin. And I'm, <laughs> I'm Emily Gremlin. Yeah, and I'm Emma Dilemma. And this is it. Yeah. This is what you've been waiting for. <laughs> All week. All week. Except it's Monday. So you've been waiting maybe a couple hours. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. All right. So let's let's jump. Yeah, let's do it. We're doing a double header today because we uh, oh we both have conferences and we both have fielding and Work. so we gotta we gotta keep yeah. this every Monday it's just for you guys. Silly. Yeah, we'll usual. see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. You can always just cut it off before <laughs> the end of the episode. That's when things get weird. <laughs> it is. The end is when things get weird. I like it, though. Yeah, I do, too. I like when things get weird. All right. So, Emlyn. Yes. Let's get weird. How long, say, like, a nuclear bomb exploded in the middle of the Pacific Ocean? Okay. How long would it take the radioactive fallout, so, like, elements resulting from that bomb, to, re- to like, spread throughout all of the ocean's waters? 16 months. That's actually, like, really close. It's, like, one and a half years. How do you know that? I don't. I did. It's great. I did listen to a, uh, some podcast that talked about this, like, a, a boat that carries things. Oh, a tank. A tank. No. Like, a tanker? Tanker sounds right, but I don't know boat lingo. It was a boat that carried things, and they sank, and they oh. were carrying a huge thing of rubber duckies. Oh. And so they tracked right. the floating rubber duckies and how quickly they spread to all the oceans in the world. That's cool. Yeah. So that is probably right for a different... Yeah. I'm yeah. sure there's a large variation depending on ocean if it's, currents in any one year. That and the substance, radioactive material versus rubber duckies. <laughs> I prefer rubber duckies. I do too. Yeah. yeah. What if they, if they both spilled at the same time? The rubber duckies would be like a warning sign. <laughs> They get there first, and you'd be like, "No, oh shit, stay out of the oceans for three more months, yeah, or forever, forever, I guess. maybe." Yeah. Hey guys, quick addendum before we even start. <laughs> before we start the real episode, um, um, we just googled, and we're both wrong. We're both wrong, but we're consistently wrong by about ten times ten. Yeah. Yeah. So it took about 15 years for radioactive elements to circulate throughout all ocean waters. And it also took about 15 (laughs) years 
<laughs> for 28,000 rubber ducks lost at sea to wash up on shore. So my metaphor was very right, <laughs> but my numbers were very wrong. We had the numbers right, just not the decimal point. Yeah, yeah. That happens to everybody. Anyway. Okay. Back to the yeah. show. There we go. Bye-bye. Anyway, so our lady scientist today... Katsuko Saruhashi All right. is the woman who discovered, or who first described at least, the length of time it would take for a radioactive element to travel throughout all the oceans. Okay. Yeah. Nice. So I'm going to tell you about her life and her career and how she got there. This is today. not the person I did. Good. I'm very happy about that. <laughs> I kind of knew that. <laughs> Okay, um, let's see. So, Katsuku Saruhashi was born in Tokyo, Japan on March 22nd, 1920. Okay. What? No, I'm just, I'm doing some math in my head. Mental math. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't seem good. I mean, yeah. Yeah, continue. It's okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, continue. (laughs) Um, her parents were Kuniharu Saruhashi and Kuno Saruhashi. And her given name, Katsuko, means strong-minded or victorious in Japanese. Which I think she was. Yeah. Yeah. I know nothing about her, but I'm going to agree with you. Yeah, given that we're talking about her, she's probably somewhat successful, yeah. right? In one biography of Katsuko, the author states that her fascination with water began at an early age and she'll go on you'll see to like study how oceans work and like how things circulate throughout oceans um as a schoolgirl in tokyo she would watch raindrops cascade down the window pane of her classroom Hmm. and became fascinated with their molecular behavior and she was often sick or weak as a child and so would see doctors a lot. And she remembers being impressed by the brisk manner of women doctors at work. Hmm. So those are kind of two of her inspirations yeah. as a child. Like working women and rain. I don't know. I like yeah. it. <laughs> she would probably like some of those episodes of Friends where they're staring at rain. <laughs> oh, yeah. And Joey's like weird. Yeah. Like rain. rain like uh, fountain yeah. thing yeah um she learned english in a private school private high school in tokyo with the help of her brother after high school she worked at a life insurance company for a little bit her parents got her a job with their friend but eventually or after a few years she decided she really wanted to go to college and further her education she wanted to become a doctor which pleased her parents Katsuko speculated in her autobiography that her mother wanted her to be financially independent because they because her mother had grown up during a lot of different like wars and mm-hmm. attacks on Japan and had seen a lot of women lose their husbands and then have no means of living basically yeah, and no independence and no finances so she thinks that's why her mother supported her, even though Japan was pretty against, like, women working at that time. Yeah. So she started her undergraduate degree at the Imperial Women's College of Science, which is now called Toho University, in 1941, which is right in the middle of World War II. 
At the time, university labs in Japan and everywhere kind of were short of equipment and men, which I think is why sort of like here with women going to work, like more women there started going to work and Mm -hmm. going to school. However, most of their universities, their major public universities didn't really admit women. So women were mostly going to private women's colleges. Gotcha. Which sucks because men and people in Japan look down on private schools. Okay. For some reason. They just weren't as quality, basically, at that time. She interviewed at a women's medical college, but didn't like the principal. So instead decided to major in physics at the women's science college. Okay. So, like, she had wanted to be a doctor, you know, but she ended up going to school for physics instead. And while at the Imperial Women's College, one of her professors that knew that she really loved rain introduced her to a government meteorological scientist, Yasuo Miyaki, who became an important research mentor to her for the rest of her life, basically, and a good friend. Nice. So really cool that she got that early on. Later, she says that Yasuo didn't care if she was a man or a woman. If a researcher had drive, he could do as much as he could for them. And he really did, like, support her heavily throughout her whole career. That's excellent. I don't know. Sort of their relationship really shows the importance of mentoring. Yeah. And also emphasized to me, and I'll, I mean, we'll talk about this more, I'm sure, but emphasized to me that Yes, men, you can mentor <laughs> Like, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Please don't pull a, um, don't uh, pull a Mike Pence. What? He can't mentor, oh, he can't be in the same yeah, room Yeah, he can't be, a, yeah. Without his wife. Which makes it hard right? to mentor people. Bullshit. <laughs> Under uh, Yasuo's guidance, Katsuku started doing research on the physico-chemical properties of polonium, a radioactive substance discovered by Marie Curie. Mm-hmm. Nice. Um, when she graduated in 1943, oh, and while she was doing that research at this, like, government lab, not at her universities. Okay. Because they didn't have the facilities at her university. So Yasuo, her mentor, would leave his lab open for her to come in, like, later in the day oh, to do nice. research. Yeah. When she graduated from the Imperial Women's College, she began doing research... Wait, wait, sorry. She obtained a position... (laughs) Sorry, reading the wrong sentence. In Yasuo's lab. Okay. uh, The geochemical lab in the Central Meteorological Observatory in Japan. Studying oceanography and the atmosphere, her two favorite things. And this was abnormal at the time... First, because most women graduating from college in Japan would go on to be school teachers. Yeah. And because most graduating college students interested in research were expected to do war-related research at that time. Like weapons research or, I don't know, strategy or something. I don't know what war research is. I mean, there's a lot of things. Yeah. And she did kind of do some of that. Like, her first project was investigating fog dispersal in airfields. Okay. But at least it was still related to rain and stuff, kind of. Yeah. She was the only woman doing field work in her group. And she says, I was absorbed in my work, not because I was a woman scientist trying to catch up with male ones, 
but when I studied seriously the apparently complicated natural phenomenon hidden behind the closely veiled um, would be revealed one by one and the entangled structure of nature could be gradually uncovered. I would not exchange the great joy as a scientist for anything. Nice. So she just loved yeah. doing research. She was just out there doing it. Yeah. In 1944, the lab was moved to a suburb of Tokyo, I guess, to avoid bombings in the city. Seems like a good plan. Yeah. On August 6th and 9th, 1945, the U.S. dropped the infamous atomic B-29 bombs on Japanese cities Hiroshima and Nagasaki, respectively, killing over 100,000 people on impact in both cities. And then more people over the coming weeks due yeah. to, like, fallout and radiation sickness. And about a week later, on August 15th, Japan surrendered from the war. Yeah. So that's just kind of where we are with World War II. And so she's, like, 20s. Yeah. I don't... She, post-college 20s. Yeah, I couldn't find anything on, like, where she was that day. Or, yeah. I don't know. Or both those days are how people reacted to it that she knew or anything. It might be in her autobiography, but that's in Japanese and no one reported that section of it in English anywhere. You don't speak Japanese? I do. You don't read Japanese? I don't. I can't do either. I wish I could. Yeah. It'd be awesome. Okay. Five years later, Yasuo, her mentor, suggested that she investigate the behavior of carbon dioxide in seawater. Okay. So everyone now, of course, is concerned about carbon dioxide in our atmosphere, Mm -hmm. in the oceans, whatever. But at the time, yeah, yeah. But at the time, like nobody was, and it was really difficult to measure. But she used a new method called the Conway Microdiffusion Method that someone had developed a couple years earlier, which measured CO2 in water with better accuracy than any previous method. Essentially, what you do is like you use a dish that has a few different compartments, sort of like a moat around a central thing. and. In one compartment, you put a known amount of something that absorbs CO2 and reacts with it. In her case, this was barium hydroxide solution. Then you pour some sample water, in this case ocean water containing CO2, into an outer part of the dish. You close it off. You add something that helps free CO2 from the ocean water. Then you then you close it off, and the gas that releases from the ocean water gets absorbed into the other solution, which you put in there in a known amount. Okay. It reacts with it, and you measure how much reaction occurs. Okay. And that tells you how much CO2 there was in that sample of ocean water. Seems like a lot of work. Yeah, it's complicated. Yeah. It took me a long time to understand. (laughs) (laughs) It's not a chemist. Yeah, so she was able to, like, actually measure the amount of CO2 dissolved in ocean water this way. Nice. And after that, she used equilibrium constants to build a table called the Saruhashi table, after her last name, that spells out exactly how much each different carbonic form, like, also, like, H2CO3, HCO3-CO3, CO3, how much... Each of these should be present in fresh or salt waters at different temperatures and pHs. In this table, okay. 
has been informative to like ocean scientists forever. Nice. Basically. That's awesome. Like you can just look up the pH, the salinity and the temperature of your water and look in this table and be mm-hmm. like, this is how much carbonic acid should be in here. Yeah. Whatever. Nice. Cause it's kind of laborious to calculate, I guess. Yeah. It sounds like it. Yeah. And so these techniques are useful because then you can use them to to study how ocean and wind currents move carbon dioxide and other carbonic forms. And for this work, she was awarded a PhD in chemistry from Tokyo University in 1957 and was the first woman to receive one in that discipline from that university. Nice. Yeah. Okay. So her expertise was in chemicals dissolved in ocean waters, essentially. Yeah. At the same time as she was getting her PhD, the U.S. and other countries were testing further nuclear bombs on deserted islands in the Pacific. So Mm -hmm. this is after Hiroshima and Nagasaki. They were just, they were trying to make even better nukes right during the space race and Cold War. So yeah, the U.S. and Russia were both basically like detonating bombs on deserted islands and I say deserted as in they made people leave the islands and then would test the bombs and there would be fallout on nearby islands where they hadn't deserted people because they didn't expect them to be so big and like it was awful. Did they not see the original like how could it not be that big? I don't know. Uh, Okay. Yeah it was it was sounds really horrible. Yeah. Yeah. In March 1954, the U.S. carried out a hydrogen bomb experiment on Bikini Atoll of the Marshall Islands in the Pacific Ocean. This is also known as Castle Bravo detonation. I don't know. These names sort of rung a bell, but I didn't know that much about it. I feel like I've heard of Bikini Atoll, but I've not heard of Bravo. I feel like I've heard of it in, like, some pristine corals. Yeah, Yeah, it is. Yeah. Well, they blew up the pristine. Oh, okay. (laughs) So this bomb was huge. To compare, it was a thousand times more powerful than the Hiroshima bomb and has rendered the immediate area nearly uninhabitable to this day. Jesus. And whereas Hiroshima has returned back to normal radiation levels. Yeah. Unfortunately for everyone, the crew of a Japanese fishing trawler, the Daigo Fukiryu Maru, or in English, the number five lucky dragon ship, was sailing east of the test zone in an off-limit area on accident. Mm. About 100 miles from the test site, which isn't that far. 161 kilometers when the bomb went off. So they could see it. That's got to be terrifying. And then they felt like basically... Coral full of radiation falling all over them. Yeah. The 23 crew members were severely affected by radiation sickness, and one of the crew, Aikichi Kuboyama, died in September that same year. So bad PR for the U.S., especially because Japan had a pro-U.S. president at that time, and relations had been getting better since the war, and this was just... Just a bad thing for the U.S. to be doing. And after the death of the crew member, the geochemical lab run by Yasui set up monitoring stations throughout Japan. And Katsuko says they were the first group in the world to begin research into how radiation from 
Bikini Atoll, and other U.S. and Russian test sites were dispersed in the atmosphere. That's awesome. So their lab began, like, looking for how far does this radiation travel and how much of it and how fast. Um, Yasui specifically asked Katsuko to measure how much radioactive fallout was present in ocean waters, as that was her specialty. Yeah. So Katsuko developed a way to measure radioactivity in seawater with great precision, And she was specifically looking for two radioactive isotopes, cesium-137 and strontium-90. So both of these elements form as nuclear fission products of uranium-235 with other elements. So, you know, uranium-235 is super unstable. If you hit it with another isotope, it breaks apart. Mm -hmm making these smaller elements and letting out, you know, tons of energy. Yeah. These smaller atoms are often also radioactive and unstable and are releasing energy through their decay. Yeah. And so you can measure the concentration of these resulting isotopes in a substance by isolating them and then measuring how much radioactivity is coming from the isolated portion, like how much energy and what type. Yeah. They have different types of decay. I'm not going to describe that because I, like, got a little lost. Yeah. Sorry. I know about beta I'm decay. sorry, physicists. That's all I know about. It's only because of yeah. Changchun Wu. Yeah. Go back to Changchun Wu episode five? Five? five. I don't know. If you want to learn about beta decay. Yeah. Yeah. But they have machines that can measure radioactivity. But the problem with ocean water is that these elements were so dilute that you can't just take a small sample and hold it up to, like, a Geiger counter. Mm -hmm. You have to concentrate it first. Okay. So collect hundreds of liters of water, concentrate it, and then measure. Gotcha. And so she had to figure out a way to separate the isotopes from the water to concentrate it. And she did that. And I don't know how to explain that except to say she, she used an inorganic salt to do it. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Like she, she found did a salt yeah. that would do it. Nice. Salt's great. Yeah. I love salt. Uh, ammonium phosphomolybdate for anyone who wants to look it up. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> okay. So using her method, they found that there was 5 to 100 times higher concentrations of radioactive cesium and strontium in the Pacific near Japan than Mm -hmm. in the Pacific near the U.S. or in the Atlantic. Gotcha. Where other people were doing similar measurements. And their paper claimed that this was a direct result of being so close to nuclear testing sites. Yeah. Additionally, she found it took only a year and a half for radioactive water from test sites to reach Japan. Anyways, this just showed that being closer to the test sites made you more vulnerable to radioactivity, essentially. And when the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission read her paper, they insisted the values were an error and were too high. So... Katsuko went to the Scripps Institute of Oceanography in San Diego in 1962 upon insistence of her mentor, uh, Yasui, to prove the Americans wrong. And this is pretty amazing that he wanted her to go there and not him or something because women scientists in Japan were looked down on, still treated poorly by the majority of people in Japan. And so for her advisor to send her as a representation of their science 
to the U.S. was, like, pretty amazing. Yeah. And while at Scripps, she co-authored a paper with Ted Folsom, or Theodore Folsom, who had studied ocean effects from Bravo um, and Wiggum nuclear tests, so the same one. Yeah. He promoted the use of weapons explosions as radioactive tracers to study the ocean, so he was using radioactivity to study ocean currents gotcha. and had yeah. done similar measurements to her. And a couple of things I read stated that when she showed up in San Diego, he sent her to stay in a wooden hut where she could complete her work and insisted that she did not commute to lab every day. I don't know how many wooden shacks there are in San Diego anymore. I know. Isn't that weird? Come to Scripps, but then don't come to... Don't use our labs... You have to do this in a small wooden hut. <laughs> like, I want to see a picture of this wooden yeah, hut. Yeah, I mean, it almost sounds pleasant, but that's because I need a vacation, it's, not because Part I'm... of me is, like, was it a cabin? I don't know. Yeah. But a cabin in San Diego is kind of weird, too. Yeah. So, I don't know what that's about. <laughs> she was also given a sample of lower amounts of cesium, meaning it would be harder to analyze because there's already it's already so dilute in ocean yeah. water that unless you have a certain amount, it's very hard to, like, detect. However, their paper together showed that the Japanese estimates did align with the measurements they were making at Scripps mm-hmm. and that her method was more precise. Nice. Yeah. So it worked out in the end. And let's see, moving out of research a little bit and going back a couple years, after her PhD, Katsuko had begun to get more involved in anti-nuclear weapon initiatives, which were largely led by women in Japan and around the world in general. In 1958, she attended a conference in Vienna put on by a nonprofit, the Women International Democratic Federation. And while there, she represented Japan by making an anti-nuclear statement based on scientific knowledge of how radiation gets into food and water and then into our bodies when we eat food and drink that water. Yeah. I don't know. She stressed that women were motherly and peacemakers and that together women should try to end nuclear proliferation sort of had the idea that it's in women to, like, be more peaceful. Hmm. Which sort of went against other Japanese female scientists at the time who were trying to stress that they were just like men or, like, not different. Sort of these two feminist perspectives of that time. Like, women are powerful because we're this. Whereas others were saying women are powerful because we're not different, you know? Yeah, I feel like, I mean, I feel like that's a similar thing that people Still argue now. Yeah, yeah, like, it's true. are women exactly the same as men and that's why they shouldn't be discriminated against? Or should they not be discriminated <laughs> yeah. against because they're different and it's provide like, valuable new insight that, yeah. like, yeah, anyways. But really, just everyone is different. Yeah. And if they provide value, that's valuable. What's important, yeah. <laughs> and, but anyway... I just thought that was sort of interesting. And later that year, she established the Society of Japanese Women Scientists as a platform to gather, discuss, and find practical solutions to the issues female scientists face in Japan, including finding solutions to the radiation pollution that um, directly resulted from nuclear bomb testing in the area. 
And one cool thing, in 1959, Ava, Helen, Pauline, and Linus Pauline were visiting Japan as part of their human rights anti-nuclear activism. And she invited Ava to come speak at her society. And she did. Nice. Yeah. So Linus Pauling won a Nobel Prize in chemistry for studying how, like, chemical bonds form, basically. Mm -hmm. Or something like that. But Ava was was a human rights activist and writer. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Not just that. Yeah. I understand. So some of her quotes about nuclear bombs and scientists' role in the creation of nuclear bombs that I thought was interesting... She says in her autobiography, like, what had, has driven scientists to create atomic bombs in such a short time? As a scientist, I approve of the deep interest and curiosity scientists have for nature, which may inspire them to become involved in research and finally project work. However, strong doubts must be cast on those who not only created the atomic bombs, but also gave t- tacit consent to drop them. How could the scientists concerned defend their innocence? And the scientists should have known how devastating their effects would be. Pretty heavy. Yeah. Um, and further, further thoughts, what was Einstein thinking about when he recommended the U.S. development of atomic energy for military purposes? What were the true feelings of Robert Oppenheimer, the scientific director of the project? Scientists should play an important role in society and thus return to their roots and duties as scientists. So, yeah, yeah. it's sort of weird because as an American, sometimes you're like, well, the war ended as a result of these this horrible catastrophe. Yeah. Is it a means to an end? But it's just like have probably been in Japan and I don't know. For sure. Even just as like a human, you can also just be like, no one should have died in that way. Yeah. Yeah, it's also having scientists making weapons such as that. Yeah. It's like, at what point do people have a responsibility to stop and be like, just because I can doesn't mean I should. I feel right. like there's a lot of stuff now with, like, genetics and, like, yeah. just because we can doesn't mean we should or and, like, technology. we should think about Yeah, a yeah. technology. Like, let's think about this before yeah. we do things. It's yeah. pretty... Anyway, she was... She had a lot, she really like fought hard and argued a lot against the proliferation of nuclear weapons. And I think like a lot of her work over the years helped to lead to the ban or the treaty on the ban of nuclear, of making nuclear weapons eventually. Yeah. But her work combined with like a bunch of other people, right? So she published over 80 papers in her career including further work on nuclear fallout in oceans and freshwaters. By 1979, she'd become the executive director of the Geochemical Lab, where she'd done her groundbreaking work on radioactive fallout. She retired in 1980 and founded the Association for the Bright Future of Women Scientists and the Saruhashi Prize which became an annual prize for Japanese women scientists who make important contributions to the sciences. And it still goes out every year to nice. a woman in science. And said, said that, I, want to, I wanted to highlight the capabilities of women scientists. Until now, those capabilities have been secret. 
1981, she ran to be a council member of the Science Council in Japan. Okay. Which is an organization of a few thousand scientists that represents goals or ideas for scientists in Japan. Yeah. And she won and was the first woman to be on the council of about 200 of the members to help her campaign. This is just a cute story. Her (laughs) mentor, Yasuo, wrote a handwritten note on each of the 3,000 postcards that she sent out to members of the group. Aww. She was, like, 71 and going blind. <laughs> and it's just, like, they were just lifelong friends, yeah, too. Yeah, she think. was very dedicated yeah. to her. And she won a, f- a few more prizes, which you can just... I'll upload articles, you can see that. And she passed away in 2007 at the age of 87 at her home in Tokyo. She seems awesome. Yeah, she was really cool. Nice. Yeah, she fought pretty hard for a representation of women in the sciences. Yeah. Especially because there were other notable female scientists in Japan who just wanted to not be seen as a woman scientist. It's just like a scientist. Yeah, yeah. so, and I do think her contributions have helped women scientists there a lot. Nice. Yeah. So, yeah. I love it. That's awesome. That's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. What a break. Um, mine's really short, so okay, we could just chuck. Yeah, let's just yeah. chuck. Okay. Let's just chuck. Chuck it out. <laughs> let's not even do it. Work, 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 work. So our next section is the women who work, badass ladies making history today, and this is a a young lady that I'll be talking about today. Nice. Young. So we're doing a lot today. So I have a very short one, and I just have one. <laughs> Shout out goes to <laughs> Megana Bolampali, uh, 17, of Little Rock, Arkansas. 17? Oh my god. She received one of two Intel Foundation Young Scientist Awards cool. of $50,000. Oh my god. So the Intel Foundation Young Scientist Awards is a program of Society for Science and the Public. And it's the world's largest international pre-college science competition. Wow. So it's like a really fancy version of like a science fair, yeah. I would say. And this year's competition featured nearly 1,800 young scientists selected uh, from 420 fairs. So I guess it is from this is like science fairs. the science fair. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in 81 countries, regions, and territories. Dang. And so she won one of these two prizes. And she won for her novel, I'm just going to read it and then we can discuss what it means. Okay. Okay. So she won for her novel, Low Cost Approach, for synthesizing materials that could greatly cut the production and energy costs of making electrodes for devices like supercapacitators. Yeah, supercapacitors. I don't know what that is. (laughs) Okay, so a supercapacitor is a high capacity (laughs) capacitor. No. Okay. A supercapacitor is a high capacity capacitor. That is so stupid. Okay. A capacitor, I went to simple English, Wikipedia. A capacitor, do you not? No. Yeah. Under languages, you can do simple English and it will be like non technical. I need that. Yeah. So a capacitor is an electrical electronic device that stores electric energy. It is similar to a battery, but can be smaller, lightweight, and a capacitor charges or discharges much quicker. 
So she found that combining common substances like tea and molasses with nitrogen and phosphorus in a commercial microwave formed a powder that could be used as a coating for electrode-like materials. Oh my god. Giving the materials properties similar to more expensive metals like platinum. So like a lot of... I'm thinking like iPhones and like Macs that need platinum for like some of their coat... Like they need platinum coatings for things. Oh. What she found was that you could use these, like, super cheap materials if you, like, added them in the right mixture and, like, microwave them. And you could, like, coat that onto electrodes and it would, like, work. How did she, like, figure out that those things could be added together to make... Does the combination of tea, molasses, and pretty much fertilizer not sound like it would be similar to platinum? snack? No. (laughs) Yeah, so that's what she... that's amazing. Yeah. And she figured out how to make it pretty much, like, cheaper and not using these, like, really difficult metals that are, like... Yeah, Platinum is rare and expensive and mined generally not in a great way. So if you can use tea and molasses... Yeah. That's awesome. That's my shout-out. Wow, 17. I wish I was that cool at 17. I was not. I wish I was that cool now. Yeah, fair, fair, fair. Me too. All right, right, that's all I I got. I guess that's our episode. I guess that's our episode. It's kind of weird because we have another one we're going to do. So, yeah, see you soon. But, um. In a week. Oh. Oh, wait. And I'll see you soon, Emlyn. After another glass of uh, Prosecco. Yeah. Yeah. Please, if you like the episode, rate us on iTunes, subscribe, review, all that good stuff. It helps us. Yeah, we're trying to beat out the. Competition. Intelligent Design Podcast. Yeah, that doesn't have any episodes. We would like to beat them on the charts. No, they have episodes. Oh, they have episodes. Okay. But we got to beat them. Oh, they're on the science? Yeah, they're That's on the, science, the top 200 science podcasts on iTunes. Please Guys, help us. Help us beat them. Hashtag <laughs> beat Intelligent Design. <laughs> I love it. I'm Retweet gonna... hashtag beat Intelligent Design. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, so so do that. And then, yeah, we just want to thank Caitlin Friesen for our art and Artichoke for our theme song, Mary Anning. Stimulator? Stimulator. Stimulator. Bye. Bye. By circa 1820, she ran a fossil star.